In the fall of 2019, the book Radical Candor was released. I suspect you've heard of it. More than just a book, however, the idea of Radical Candor turned into something closer to a movement, one that swept across the corporate world and no doubt was a topic discussed in countless meetings. In Radical Candor, the author Kim Scott laid out a simple framework for how to create, foster, and thrive in a culture that effectively gives and receives feedback. Direct, clear, concise, and actionable feedback. As Kim herself is quick to note, however, the thing is that when you write a book about feedback, well, you get a lot of feedback. And indeed she did. Rather than ignoring or hiding from all that, however, Kim decided to do the hard work of internalizing and processing it, with the result being her latest book, Just Work. For this episode, we had the pleasure of talking with Kim about Just Work, as well as hearing about the personal journey and experiences that motivated her to write it. We hope you'll enjoy and learn as much from the conversation as we did. This is Reconsidering, a podcast about life and how to live it better. I'm Bob Baxley. I'm Meredith Black. I'm Aaron Walter. Welcome to Reconsidering. Hello, everybody. I am Kim Scott. I'm the author of Radical Candor, Be a Kick-Ass Boss Without Losing Your Humanity, and also Just Work. Thank justice, not work all the time for that book. Before that, I was a CEO coach at Qualtrics, Dropbox, Twitter, Twitter in the before times. I certainly am not coaching the the current (laughs) monster in charge of Twitter. Before that, I was at Google and Apple. And before that, I did three failed startups and started up a diamond cutting factory in Moscow and a pediatric clinic in Kosovo. So that's me. Wow. I didn't know know those last couple of things. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) So Kim, we start with a lightning round question. I'm sure you know these. You've done these before. We have 11. Sort of sets the tone, sets the stage for the episode. You ready to play? I'm ready. Okay. The beginning or the end? The end. Alone or together? Together. Directed or meandering? Meandering. Student or teacher? Student. Words or pictures? Words. Workplace or community? Community. Point it out or let it go? Let it go. Protest or petition? Protest. Direct or nuanced? Nuanced. Accept or tolerate? Tolerate. And then harmony or dissonance? Harmony. Nice. Thanks for playing. Fantastic. I want to start your intro of yourself and your incredible diversity of steps in your career, I think is interesting. And you've had a very rich career. Somehow that's kind of consistent throughout. What role has mentorship played in your career trajectory? You know, I have been incredibly lucky and have had some incredible mentors. So early on in, you know, really starting in high school, my high school English teacher, several of them, not just one, but I had several amazing high school English teachers who really liberated me. Like one of the best classes I ever took was one in which we read novels and then just wrote in a journal. That was it. And I think that was really helpful for me to understand that this, you know, quote unquote work I was doing was actually going to enrich my life, that the work and the life were not separate, but could be one thing. My high school headmaster invited me to go on this trip 
this this trip that the Air Force was reaching out to the citizens of Memphis, Tennessee. This is like 1985, and trying to convince us that it was important to be able to blow up the world five times over. Once was not enough. (laughs) And that had a big impact. That's why I studied Russian, actually. That had a huge impact on me. But giving me that opportunity, he was supposed to go. The headmaster was supposed to go, but instead he sent me. I had incredible mentors who were professors in college. When I was working at the Federal Communications Commission, I didn't actually mention that, but Reed Hunt was my boss, and he was an incredible mentor. So I've been very lucky in my mentors, especially early on, you know, those high school teachers and middle school teachers. Actually, my fourth grade teacher was probably my first grade mentor. We don't give enough kudos to teachers. So I'm now that I'm, I wasn't planning to do this, but teachers have such a hard time right now, and I just want to state my gratitude. Let's start with Cherry Falls, my fourth grade teacher. (laughs) Wow. That was actually her name. What an awesome name. Yeah. Yeah. Cherry Falls. Wow. Wow. So Kim, I wonder if we could flip that mentoring question around a little bit, because you talked about it from the point of view of you as the mentee. And I'm wondering now in the later stage of your career, I'm sure that you mentor many people. You talked about running a coaching practice, things like that. How has being a mentor, how does that benefit you now? How do you think about that? That was incredible. So when I was, (laughs) my first experience being a coach came sort of randomly. I had helped Dick Costello when he was CEO of Twitter design this class called Managing at Twitter. And we had a great time. We had tons of fun designing that class. And in fact, that experience was what convinced me to sit down and write Radical Candor. And Dick was looking for a CEO coach, and he interviewed a bunch of people. And he said, you know, the person I like talking to about management stuff best is you, Kim. So why don't you become my coach? And this was, uh, (laughs) I would never have had the audacity to go to Dick and say, well, I'd like to be your CEO coach. You know, it was, it kind of just happened. In many ways, I felt like I was the mentee, not the mentor in that case. And then he mentioned in an interview he was doing in the press that I was his CEO coach. And now all of a sudden I had a lot of people wanting, wanting me to be their CEO coach. (laughs) And so many, in fact, that, you know, I'm a human being. And as a human being, I do not scale. I I think I can only coach about four people, maybe five at the same time until I run out of steam for it. And that also prompted me to write Radical Candor. So being the coach and being the coached are, to me, like forehand and backhand. It's not like, I know more than you, and therefore I'm your coach. I think a lot of times the word mentor, coach, ally kind of become interchangeable. I'm wondering, what's the difference between a mentor and a coach? You know, the short answer to that question is I'm not really sure. But there are kind of different roles. To me, a mentor is someone who you maybe call once or twice a year and you get quick advice, whereas a coach is someone who's more like a therapist, someone you're talking to on a regular basis. I mean, when I do my coaching engagements, there's a set time once a week, once every other week, or once a month. And once a month is never quite enough. It it should really be at least once every other week where we talk about stuff. A mentor is someone you get advice from when you need it. 
And a coach maybe is someone who you speak to on a regular cadence and you go into that conversation thinking about the things you need to talk about as opposed to, I have this acute need and I'm going to call this person because they can give me advice. So Kim, you talked about how you kind of wrote Radical Candor as a way to scale some of your coaching and mentoring practice. And then a few years after Radical Candor, then you wrote Just Work. I'm sort of curious, what was the background and, and what was the motivation to write that book? Yeah. So, you know, if you write a book about feedback, which Radical Candor was, you're going to get a lot of it. And indeed, <laughs> I, <laughs> indeed, I did. So I was giving a Radical Candor talk at a tech company in San Francisco. And the CEO of that company was someone who had been a colleague for the better part of a decade, a, a woman who I like and respect enormously, and one of too few Black women CEOs in tech. And when I finished giving the Radical Candor talk, she pulled me aside and she said, Kim, I'm excited to roll out Radical Candor. I think it's going to help me build the kind of culture I want. But I've got to tell you, it's much harder for me to roll it out than it is for you. And she went on to explain to me that as soon as she would offer anyone, even the most compassionate, gentle criticism, she would get signed with the angry black woman stereotype. And I knew this was true and irrational. She's one of the calmest, most cheerful people I ever met. And I realized four things when she told me this. The first was that I had failed to be the kind of colleague that I imagined myself to be, that I want to be. I had failed even to notice the extent to which she had to show up unfailingly cheerful and pleasant at every meeting we had ever been in together, even though she had what to be ticked off about in that period of time, as we all do at work. The second thing that I realized was that not only had I been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to her, I had also been in denial about the kinds of things that were happening to me as a woman in the workplace, as a white woman in the workplace. And I think part of the reason I had pretended, it's kind of hard for the author of a book called Radical Candor to admit, but I had been pretending that a whole host of things were not happening that were in fact happening. And I think part of the reason for that was that I never wanted to think of myself as a victim. But even less than wanting to think of myself as a victim did I ever want to think of myself as the culprit. And that brought me to my third revelation, which was that sometimes in the course of my career, I had harmed my colleagues, my bosses, my employees. I'd never intended to, but I had caused harm. And then the fourth thing that I realized was that you know, I imagined that I, in, in radical candor, I think I said that I had created a workplace that should be a bullshit free zone. <laughs> and yet I had failed to do that. And very often bias, prejudice, and bullying had, I had allowed them to go unchallenged on my teams. And so those four revelations were sort of what prompted me to sit down and write the book, Just Work, and to really think about What's the difference between bias, prejudice, and bullying? How can we respond to them in a way that makes them not sort of happen over and over and over again? And what happens when you layer power on top of them? And, and that's really why I wrote Just Work. So it shows that feedback can really enrich your life and help you do better work if you're willing to hear it. I think it's really hard as a woman, especially a woman... I think in any in in any environment, right, to provide feedback to somebody else without being labeled aggressive, bossy, 
Yeah. Um, abrasive. Abrasive. Bitchy. Yeah. <laughs> Been called all those. I mean, we we get called them all the time just for kind of stating our opinion. Yeah. How are you trying to help women, especially with both of you know the books that you've come out with? How are you trying to help women kind of empower themselves to have a voice, but not be so, I don't know what the word is. I, I don't want to say like soft, but we definitely have to articulate things a certain way or else we are judged a certain way. And so my question to you is like, how have you navigated that? And how do you navigate that, especially with women who are very, very high up? Yeah, I could talk and talk and talk about this. I, I think the first thing that I'm trying to do, especially with just work, is to build solidarity with everyone who's underrepresented along any dimension, and also to build solidarity with upstanders who may be <clears throat> overrepresented. And so I think that's really important. But I don't want to back away from the specific question that you asked, is how does this apply to being a woman? I mean, I will confess I don't navigate this perfectly. I think none of us do. So I think part of it is cutting ourselves and other people some slack. So for example, let's look at radical candor. I think if I hadn't been a woman, I might have entitled that book Compassionate Candor. But I was afraid <laughs> that as a woman, I could not get away with calling a book Compassionate Candor. Maybe that was all for the better, because I think radical candor is going to sell better than compassionate candor. But radical candor is also more apt to be misinterpreted. A lot of people will confuse radical candor. They'll use it as an excuse to act like a jerk, you know, in the spirit of radical candor. And then the person <laughs> is an asshole. And that's not the spirit of radical candor. That is the spirit of obnoxious aggression. And I wasn't even aware none of that happened at a conscious level. So I think part of it is just being more aware of what's going on. Another thing to think about is, as a woman, to remember that you're more likely to get unjustly accused of what I call obnoxious aggression when you're being radically candid. And that's what happened to my colleague, the CEO. And it's obviously, if you're a woman with multiple intersections, it's going to be harder than if you're a cis, straight, white woman. But you're more likely to be unjustly accused of obnoxious aggression. And I think the thing to do in those moments is to take an extra beat to move up on the care personally dimension. And the more senior you get, the more important it is to take an extra beat to say, look, I can tell you really care about this project. I've got an idea. I think it'll help make it better. Are you, know, are, are you open to hearing it? I worked with a guy, I, I was working at a big tech company and I had worked with a guy for about a year. And suddenly he looked at me and he said, oh, you're doing this because you care, not because <laughs> you're trying to drive me nuts. And I realized like I could have taken an extra beat earlier on in our relationship. We would have had an easier working relationship. But there's a risk in here because I think very often when you're a woman or when you're underrepresented along any dimension, you're often asked to do more than your fair share of the emotional labor. And if you try too hard to dance around everybody else's defensiveness, then you're going to burn out. So you want to take an extra beat, but you don't want to get dragged too high up on the care personally dimension. Virginia Woolf has a wonderful essay called The Angel in the House, and she's writing about this Victorian poem 
that sort of claims that women are wonderful because they have no wants or needs of their own. They just exist to serve the needs of the men around them. And Virginia Woolf said, it is the duty of the woman writer to kill the angel in the house. And I think sometimes the angel did not get killed, despite Virginia Woolf's tremendous efforts, but she just left the house and entered the office. And so I would say it is the duty of a senior woman to kill that expectation that women be the angel in the office and to make sure that bias, prejudice, and bullying don't masquerade as feedback. And that brings me to another thing that I've tried to do. I've really tried in Just Work to differentiate between bias and prejudice and bullying so that we can respond most effectively to each one. Maybe you did dig in a little bit to the definitions of those three concepts. And I'm also hoping you can touch on why this conversation is coming up. And, and, and it's not like a particularly recent thing. It's been going on for the last five or seven years, but it hasn't really been at least the same level of attention for the last 15 or 25 years. Is there something unique about where we sit socially or where we're sitting historically that's brought this stuff to the foreground? Do you think that we're, that as a society, we're getting better now that we're taking this on? Or is it just some other thing brought it to the foreground? Yeah, I'm not sure it's new. I mean, Virginia Woolf (laughs) was talking about it a long time ago. I think that as a society, we kind of have been taking two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. I would like to think things are really better now. And the things that happened to me early in my career would never happen to my daughter when she enters the workplace I'm not sure that's true. Some of the worst, sort of most problematic things that I ever noticed happened to women in the workplace happened late in my career, not early in my career. So anyway, but let's take a step back and define bias, prejudice, and bullying. I think the thing, by the way, though, that has changed is that people are talking about it more. You know, my daughter, who's 13, says things that I never would have said at age 13 or notices things that I never would have noticed at age 13. So that's, to me, two steps forward. But bias, prejudice, and bullying. Let's kind of, because I think we can't fix problems we refuse to notice. And it's also hard to fix problems when we're conflating one problem with another. So I think part of the solution is in definitions and then responses. So I'm going to offer some definitions that are super short, they're meant to disambiguate, not to be comprehensive. So bias is not meaning it. It's kind of an unconscious and usually a brain hiccup. Prejudice is meaning it. It's a consciously held prejudiced belief, usually reflecting some kind of incorrect stereotype. And bullying is just being mean. There's no belief, conscious or unconscious, the person is just being a jerk acting mean. So bias, not meaning it, prejudice, meaning it, bullying, being mean. Those are my simple definitions. And once you sort of look at that, then it becomes a little bit easier to think about what to say when you don't know what to say. Whether you're the target of these attitudes and behaviors or you observe them and you want to be an upstander or an ally, as you said, Bob. So if you notice bias, I think the best response is an I statement. I don't think you meant that the way that it sounded. You're kind of holding up a mirror. Whereas when you notice prejudice, I think that the best response is an it statement. 
because holding up a mirror isn't enough with prejudice. The person's going to smile in the mirror. They're going to like what they see, you know? And so you want to say it is illegal, it is an HR violation, or it is ridiculous, an it statement. Whereas with if it's bullying, an I statement invites someone in to understand things. It brings them closer. If it's bullying, you do not want that person closer. You want to push them away. I learned this from my daughter when she was getting bullied in third grade. And I was encouraging her to use an I statement. You know, I feel sad when you blah, 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 blah. And she banged her fist <laughs> on the table and she said, mom, they are trying to make me feel sad. Why would I tell them they succeeded? <laughs> and I thought, you know that? That's a really good point. That's some radical candor from my from my. <laughs> and so we thought about saying, you know, you can't talk to me like that, or what's going on for you here? It's kind of a you question or a you statement. We can tell some stories about each of these, but that's the basic framework in just work, like to differentiate between bias, prejudice, and bullying, and to come up with some responses. And of course, leaders have to play an important role here too, because all the burden of these responses shouldn't fall on the people who are harmed by these things. We all have a role to play. We'll be right back after this word from our sponsors. Meredith, I've recently become a really big fan of Athletic Greens and their product AG1. Have you tried it, Meredith? Yeah, I've tried it. And I have to say, I look forward to taking it every day now. Yeah, for me, you know, the idea of having one super research drink that has everything I need, it's got all the vitamins and minerals that I need, prebiotics, probiotic, it's good for gut health, you're keeping your immune system tuned up and just like feeling your best. The idea of that being in one single drink that I can take every day in the morning is very attractive. Yeah, and you know what else I really love is that AG1 is just one scoop that you put in eight ounces of water. It's not like you have to go out and buy a million different supplements and keep taking all of these pills. You've just got everything in one scoop. So it's so nice and convenient. And it's also so much more affordable. And it actually tastes good too. I mean, I enjoy drinking it every morning along with my coffee. And when I travel, you know, they give you these great travel packs so I can just slip it in my duffel bag when I'm visiting family, going on vacation. I've got it with me, so I'm always at my best. So if you're curious and want to check out Athletic Greens like Aaron and I and their AG1 formula, there's no better time to do it than now. You'll get a year's supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five travel packs for free. So go to athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering and get your AG1 today. That's athleticgreens.com slash reconsidering. Now back to the show. Can we play out a little scenario with you? Because I think this is something that probably a lot of listeners have experienced in one way or another. They're in a meeting and someone says something and it's like, it's Yeah, like, a cringe moment. Yeah, everyone's cringing. Like, I can't <laughs> believe they just said that. That just came yeah. out of their mouth. How do we respond? Like, what's a good way to be heard and not absolutely crush that person who may have just like, it might've been an unconscious bias. Like they made a mistake, like have some compassion for what they've done here and let everyone feel like, okay, we didn't like that. And let's not have this happen again. Yeah. And that is by the way, the essence of radical candor, right? Is you want to prevent 
mistakes from getting made over and over and over again. So let's start with bias. I'll tell you a story that Aileen Lee, who founded Cowboy VC, told me. She was going into a meeting with two colleagues who were men, and they walked into the room and they sat down at this big, long conference table, and Aileen had the expertise that was going to win her team the deal, so she sat in the middle. And then the other side came in, and the first person came and sat across from the guy to Aileen's left. The next person came and sat across from the guy to his left, and then everybody else filed on down the table, leaving Aileen dangling by herself. That's often how bias shows up, just like who decides to sit across from whom. Aileen was undeterred. She started talking. And when the other side had questions about what she was saying, they would direct them not at her, but at her two colleagues who were met. Anybody ever see that happen? Anybody ever <laughs> notice that happened? Yeah. Yeah. So it happened once. It happened twice. It happened a third time. And Aileen's colleague stood up and he said, I think Aileen and I should switch seats. That was an I statement. And that was all he had to do to totally change the dynamic in the room. Because as soon as they switched seats, everybody realized what was going on and they changed their behavior. They hadn't intended to exclude Aileen from the conversation. They didn't consciously think that an Asian woman didn't know about this topic. They, it was just unconscious bias. And he did that for a couple of reasons. He did that, first of all, because he cared about Aileen and he didn't like seeing her get ignored, but he also did it so there was kind of a justice element, but he also did it because he just wanted to win the deal. There was a practical element <laughs> and he knew that if he couldn't get the other side to listen to Aileen, that they wouldn't win the deal because she was the one whose expertise they were buying. So that's an example of an I statement. Now, as I was writing the book, it was kind of hard for me. Like I tell that story as though, of course, that's the kind of thing that happens all the time. That kind of thing almost never happens because people don't know what to say in the moment. And, you know, good for Aileen's partner for being able to think of what to say and do. But, you know, I, I want to extend some compassion for <laughs> the rest of us who don't know what to say or do in that moment. And I think this is where leadership comes in. This is where leaders can really sit down with their teams and say, you know, bias is a pattern. It's an unconscious thought pattern. It's like if you're driving somewhere and you go the wrong way one day and then you go the wrong way the next day, pretty soon you're going the long way every single day. So we need to change the pattern. You know, we are pattern makers as human beings and we can change bad patterns when we make bad ones, which we're bound to do. And so if a leader comes up with a simple process to disrupt bias, then I think that we can get a bunch of these elephants out of the room. And so the process is this, three steps. First step is to come up with a shared vocabulary. What's the word or phrase that you and your team will use to point out bias when it happens? And it's useful to have this shared vocabulary because of this, who knows what to say. So I like, hang on, I'm going to bend down and get it. I like to use a purple flag, which I have here near my desk. <laughs> so I'll say purple flag and I'll wave this purple flag. And that will help, you know, my colleagues know. And sometimes I'll be the one who said the bias thing and they'll wave the purple flag at me. But other teams hate purple flag. I mean, I like purple flag. It's friendly. It's not a red flag. It's not a yellow flag. It's friendly. And it matches the book. 
But other teams will say, yo, one team that we work with throws up a peace sign at each other. Another team will say, ouch. So whatever it is, there's no magic words here that will take the sting out of this. The key thing is that it's a shared vocabulary and that your team agrees to use the words. So don't impose words on your team. Let your team tell you the words that they will use. Now, the second thing you need to do as a leader is to create a shared norm for responding when you're the one whose bias has been flagged. Because I don't know about you all, but when someone points out to me that I've said or done something biased, I feel deeply ashamed. And I rarely respond at my best when I'm in shame brain. I mean, I can tell you in my body where I feel shame. It's like in the backs of my knees. It's the same physical sensation that I get if my children walk too close to the edge of a precipice. <laughs> you know, I'm in fear. I'm in flight or fight mode at that moment. My executive function has retreated to the background and, and my worst instincts are often taking over. So teaching people to move, the only way out of shame is through it. You don't want to teach the people who are, who are disrupting the bias to dance around that person's shame. It's that person's responsibility to manage their own shame. But as a leader, you want to help people move through those moments. So that's where a shared norm helps, where you're saying, thanks for pointing it out. And then one of two things, either I get it and I'll work on not doing it again. And you're going to have to be persistent with yourself because very often these things are like deeply ingrained habits of speech. I was working with one CEO who tended to say, you guys, and he would get in front of his team and say, guys, but you know, not everyone was a guy. And some women don't mind being called you guys and other women do. So he was working on changing that, but he wasn't going to change that. He'd been saying that since he was a kid. So that takes persistence. Now, the second thing that you say in the moment is, thank you for pointing it out, but I don't get it. Can you explain it to me after the meeting? And the reason why I'm encouraging people to talk about it after the meeting is that the idea of bias disruptors is to disrupt the bias, not the whole meeting. So, so you, some of these things merit a longer conversation, but you don't want to disrupt the whole meeting. And then the third part of bias disruptors is you want a shared commitment. Because if you get to the end of a meeting and no bias has been flagged, then that doesn't mean probably that no bias happened. It probably means that people either didn't notice it or weren't comfortable bringing it up. So you want to take 30 seconds, and let's do this at the end of this podcast. Let's take 30 seconds to think about what we should or could have flagged but didn't. And you want to do that so that you build stamina for this, so that this becomes like a habit. It becomes like brushing and flossing. You feel gross when you don't do it rather than that it's a terrible burden to do. So that's bias. As people start to see this stuff, like their eyes kind of open and they start to I'm see. Gonna, I'm, I'm going to wave the purple flag. <laughs> now we don't have to do. So this is something that happened to me in the book. I hired someone to actually read the book and to point out to me bias that I wasn't aware of. And one of the things that she pointed out to me is that I often say see when I meant notice or I'd use words like blind spot. I was using sort of sloppy sight metaphors. And this really struck me as particularly important in that project because one of the people who was editing the book, who is a historian, one of the clearest thinkers I know, and who's blind, 
his name is Zach Shore. I, I didn't want to use language that would, so, so I cared specifically about this for him. And that, by the way, helps us, that kind of compassion helps us not sort of view these things as, oh, you know, who really cares? Like I, I knew I really cared because I care about Zach. And also because I care. I mean, I was writing a book about this topic. But anyway, so I got it. I understood. I was convinced. I had learned the lesson. This is where persistence comes in. Right before I turned the book in, I decided to do a search on the word C. And guess how many times I had, even though I knew (laughs) now, continued to use sloppy site metaphors. 350-page book. Guess how many sloppy site metaphors there were. 137. 99. So close. <laughs> a lot. So, th- so there you go. There's my purple flag, my gift. I hope you take it as a gift and not an attack. Appreciate it. Thank you for pointing it out. My thought here is as people start to recognize, you know, language and where bias exists, it's kind of like you almost can't stop recognizing it in different places. And it can sometimes lead to like a gotcha mentality if you're like looking for that thing to catch. Have you seen that happen? Is that a problem that we should be aware of? If so, how might we think about that? Yes, absolutely. It happens. I mean, another thing that I talk about in Just Work is avoiding self-righteous shaming. And self-righteous shaming takes a lot of different, <laughs> a lot of different uh, personas. But the idea of using an I statement is that you're calling another person in. You're telling them this thing because you care about them, because you have compassion for them, and because you're assuming that this is not a mistake they want to keep on making. Like if I had jumped down your throat and said, you know, you used that word C because you don't care about blind people. Like that would have been ridiculous. That obviously wasn't what was going on. So you want to make sure that you're not indulging, especially as an upstander in self-righteous shaming, because sometimes there can be a performative aspect to this. Yeah. It can turn into virtue signaling. Yeah. Virtue signaling, communicating in bad faith. I noticed this actually a lot with kids. And, you know, they act like they're just kidding around, but children often will pretend that someone has said or done something that is biased that isn't. Like, for example, I saw two kids who had to go to the bathroom and one really had to go to the bathroom and the other kind of had to. And the one who really was desperate to go to the bathroom said, I get to go in the bathroom first. And the other sort of made this claim that it was some sort of transphobia, which it wasn't. And I don't think the child really thought it was some sort of transphobia, but but they were sort of weaponizing this. It's a little bit like the boy who cried wolf. You want to make sure that you're doing this in good faith, not to get attention. I think it's a really important point. Do you think the shift in remote work has changed with bias and prejudice and bullying? Yes, there's really important evidence, and it at first is going to seem contradictory, but in Project Include, Ellen Powell's Project Include, they did research that demonstrated that when we're working remotely, there's more bias, prejudice, and bullying than when we're in person. And I think part of that is that we often lose context. Like when you all are three little squares on my screen, 
sort of subconsciously, I don't notice you, I almost said C, I don't notice you <laughs> as full human beings. I tend to think of you as like little, you know, characters. And so I think that that is part of the reason. Also, I think it can feel safer to say harsher things from a remove. At a dinner party, for example, if someone sort of jumps on their soapbox, everybody kind of rolls their eyes or whatever they do. It becomes clear to the person that what they're saying or doing is unwelcome. Whereas those sort of subtle cues are not available online. So if you jump on your soapbox online, you get some likes and you miss the more subtle cues. And so it gets rewarded more online than in person. So that's part of what's going on. There's also evidence that shows that people are more likely, for example, in code reviews, people are more likely to say really harsh things sort of in the code than that, that they would never say in person. So th there's that aspect. But at the same time, there's research that Great Places to Work has done that demonstrates that people who are underrepresented along any dimension, and I can double-click on that word if you want, but people who are underrepresented along any dimension are more likely to prefer working at home than people who are overrepresented. And so how do you square these two things? If you're underrepresented, you're likely to get more bias, prejudice, and bullying online. Why would you prefer to be at home? And I think it speaks to a couple of things. One is how hostile the work environment can be and that you feel safer when you're in your own space. Like you just experience this thing, but you can close your computer and scream bloody murder and nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna hear you when you're at home or you can go, you know, be in your own space. So I think it's really important to pay attention to this. You know, I also think that building relationships is a little bit harder when we're not in person than and when we are. And so we need to be more conscious of the things we're doing to build relationships in a remote workplace. That is not to say that I'm not a, I'm a fan of remote work. I'm a huge fan of remote work because as important as it is to be in person with your colleagues, you know, it's more important to be in person with your children and your spouse, if you have those or with your friends. So I think net-net, it's a good thing, but we've got to be more conscious of building relationships and not being biased, prejudiced, and bullying when we're working remotely. So we've been talking about all these issues through the lens of the workplace. And when I listen to arguments around the workplace, they tend to be kind of economic arguments. You know, you'll hear things like, oh, people are more productive if they're feeling safe. The companies, you know, if a more diverse environment will produce more innovative and creative outcomes, et cetera. There's sort of an economic lens to it, or at least it's kind of shifted that way. But when we talk about it in the public sphere, it's often talked about through a moral lens of it's the right thing to do. I'm wondering if you've observed that and if you if you have a preference for the economic argument versus the moral argument, or if you think they support one another or how you might conceptualize how we talk about it in the workplace versus how we talk about it in like the rest of the world. Yeah. I think that it's important to consider both the moral and the practical side of this. And I struggled with this as I was writing Just Work because sometimes when you make the moral argument, the practical argument seems sort of unimportant. And sometimes when you make the practical argument, it makes the moral argument seem unimportant. And they're both important. They're actually both really important. One of the things that I talk about in Just Work is 
this notion of brutal ineffectiveness. <laughs> and that's what happens when you ignore bias, prejudice, bullying. And, and then you ignore what happens when you layer power on top of bias, prejudice, and bullying, and you get discrimination, harassment, and physical violations, and even violence. Then you get brutal ineffectiveness. And brutal ineffectiveness is bad for everyone. It's bad economically. It's also bad morally. It's just bad, bad, bad. <laughs> And brutality is bad in its own right, and ineffectiveness is bad economically. And I think understanding the ways in which the moral and the practical benefits or costs are connected is important to do. And I, I don't think one should undermine the other. I think one should reinforce the other. The power dynamic thing, is that's an interesting overlay to the bias, prejudice, and bullying. Because one of my friends who's a tall white guy, he actually talked about how being online had diminished his power because it, yeah. the fact that he was online now made him realize how what a benefit it was to be six three and he would just yeah. walk into a room and command the room. So, you know, as a five foot seven white guy, you know, I actually I've actually preferred being online because I actually thought it was much more egalitarian, particularly in the context of brainstorming and collaborative whiteboarding, because I felt like everybody had access to the pens and anybody could draw something. And with chat, anybody can interject things. What you were talking about earlier with the remote stuff, I, I felt was mostly focused on written communication. And you know, I, like many others, can be way more aggressive in written communication than I would ever be in verbal communication, whether that was you know, an immediated verbal communication like Zoom or something in person. To me, there is kind of a power shift that's happened with remote work as well that I think has been beneficial. Yeah, I think it can cut both ways. There are benefits to it, but there are also costs to it. Basically, I think in terms of, I mean, I'm five feet, so I'm even shorter than you are uh, <laughs> by a good bit. So yes, the sort of ridiculous benefit that height confers in the workplace. I mean, at business, at business school, there was a lot of research who were trying to figure out, you know, correlations with personal attributes and success. Success at business school, of course, being defined by how much money you make. Like your intelligence didn't matter, the, how well you did in school didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was height. And everybody like treated this uh, as though it were some big joke. But, you know, to me as a five foot tall person, <laughs> I didn't think it was such a joke. So I think that being online does eliminate the height advantage that <laughs> folks have. But it does not eliminate unfair advantages that gender or race confer. And in fact, it may reinforce some of those. If you have a hard time speaking up in meetings or jumping in in meetings, it's even harder online. You know, the bloviating bullshitters, uh, shall we say? that? We, and I think that's a form of bullying, actually, this bloviating bullshit. The bloviating bullshitters do it even more in a Zoom call than they do in person. Again, I think because they're losing these more subtle cues on Zoom. And so I think that it's important just to be aware of you know, when it helps and when it hurts. And one of the things that I recommend for Zoom calls, and I'm going to score badly on this, is to check people's airtime. Like in a good conversation, everyone will have spoken roughly the same amount. So I will be the bloviating bullshitter on this podcast. I apologize. <laughs> That's by design, though. <laughs> by <laughs> invitation. 
<laughs> you know, it's interesting that you say that because I never really thought about it, but mannerisms speak so much when you're in person versus when you're on a Zoom call. You kind of get away with more if you're on a Zoom call or virtual, right? Like you can multitask. You don't know if somebody's like shaking their legs or like fidgeting or uncomfortable. Whereas where you're in person and you're talking to somebody eye to eye, you can hopefully pick up on those mannerisms to understand if something is going well or not. Yes. You know, it's interesting. I was just speaking with a tech leader who said that when people came back in person after COVID, they forgot how to behave well towards each other in an in-person meeting. She said she was horrified like that someone was giving a presentation and people would be blatantly checking their email. They'd get up and walk out and come back in. There was a lot of eating. You know, I'm not a big fan of manners, but I am a big fan of being kind to one another and being respectful. And I think the habit of disrespect that we've gotten into on social media and online is now spilling over into the real world. And that's, we got to remember to be kind and respectful to one another. Yeah. To add to that, we're talking about radical candor. We're talking about giving people feedback. But there's also this really fine line between giving people feedback and giving people unsolicited advice. Yes. I don't know where my question is going with this. I just know that it is, it's kind of hard to pick up. And I guess, I guess how do you navigate that in terms of being kind to somebody and giving them advice because you think they need it versus giving them advice because you think they need it? Yeah. I think one of the things to remember, so let's sort of take a step back. And so what is radical candor? It's caring personally and challenging directly at the same time. What is radical candor not? It's not obnoxious aggression. That's what happens when you challenge, but you don't care. It's not manipulative insincerity. That's where you're saying things you don't mean to get some kind of advantage. And it's not ruinous empathy, where you're so concerned about not hurting someone's feelings that you don't tell them something they'd be better off hearing in the long run. So ruinous empathy is caring without challenging. And in my experience, we're much more likely to be ruinously empathetic than we are to be obnoxiously aggressive or manipulatively insincere. And so when I wrote Radical Candor, I was really focusing on helping people move from ruinous empathy towards radical candor. But I think what you're talking about is kind of a form of obnoxious aggression, where your goal in saying the thing to this person is to establish your dominance, to establish that you know better. And that's not caring personally. That's obnoxious aggression. That's sort of establishing dominance. And I think, you know, if we go back to the story that we began with, I think one of the things I learned from that CEO who gave me the feedback about radical candor is how often bias, prejudice, or bullying masquerade as feedback. And I think what you're talking about is a form of bullying. Like, I'm going to tell you something because I know that I'm going to tell you the truth because I've got a pipeline to God and you don't know shit from Shinola. And that's like <laughs> not a great way to start a conversation, you know? Kim, have you considered how what you've proposed in your two books, Radical Candor and Just Work, how that applies to our most precious relationships with our partners, our parents, our kids, friendships? How could we bring that into our personal lives? 
Yes, absolutely. In fact, one of the novels that I wrote that never got published is called Virtual Love. And Virtual Love is sort of about how what I was learning about being a good manager helped me get out of a bad romance and into a happy marriage. So yes, in fact, my publisher really wanted me to write a book called The House of Radical Candor. And in that book, which I didn't write, and the reason is it's incredible to me how often I will be giving a radical candor talk purely about management, and someone will come up to me afterwards and say, you know, if I had heard this talk five years ago, I wouldn't be divorced right now. I think so often in our personal relationships, you know, in in the tech sector, we talk about technical debt. That's where there's problems in your code that you don't fix, and they pile up and then pile up, and pretty soon they break your product. And they seem like little things, but in the fullness of time, they become big things. And I think very often in our relationships, both personal and professional, we have feedback debt. And that's where the thing that bothers you about the person, you didn't want to, you know, you didn't want to nitpick, so you didn't say anything, but it bothers you and it piles up and it piles up and it piles up and eventually it explodes all over your relationship, sometimes in ways that you cannot recover from, that the relationship cannot recover from. And so I think radical candor is, it's even more important in our personal relationships than it is at work. But I don't pretend to be like some kind of relationship guru. I don't feel like I have standing to talk about human relationships more than anyone else. But I will tell you that I don't think I would be married right now if it weren't for radical candor. So when I started dating my husband early on in the relationship, there was one moment where I used to do yoga in the mornings. And one morning he came in and sat down on the couch in the living room and picked up the newspaper and started reading it <laughs> while, while I was trying to do my downward dog. And I, and I had this moment where I was like, I don't want to tell him to leave. It seems kind of, you know, impolite but I never want to see him again if he's going to sit there reading the paper. (laughs) And I realized it was better for me to continue dating him and tell him to leave the living room while I was doing yoga than to be silent and then refuse to ever allow him to come over again. And thank goodness I I said, do you mind leaving? And he did not mind leaving. He was like, oh, well, you know, I'm sorry. And he left and it was no big deal. But it would have been a big deal for me if I hadn't said anything. That's funny. We had the same thing in my house recently with me leaving the dish towels on the counter. You yeah. Know, finally, finally, after 25 years, my wife's like, could you just hang them up? And I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. Okay. Sorry about that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Kim, we like to close with a question that's sort of a reverse mentoring question. And so think about the question when I ask it for a second, because it's not quite what you think it's going to be. I want you to imagine yourself as a 25-year-old. I want you to bring that version of Kim into your consciousness. And then I want you to imagine sitting down and having coffee with that version of Kim. And I want you to help us understand what that Kim would say to the Kim that you are today. What did the 25-year-old Kim know? What would she remind you about that perhaps this stage of your life you've forgotten? That is a great question. And I was just thinking about it this morning. So it was a beautiful morning here in California. And I went out to do something. I had to, I think I went out to let the dog poop. And there were some oranges on the tree. And I decided to start picking the oranges. It was one of those intensely beautiful moments. 
And then I thought, oh, I've got to go inside. And, you know, I have this, you know, the dreaded list came on, the things I had to do. And I thought about my 25-year-old self. And my 25-year-old self would have said, blow that stuff off and enjoy the morning and pick some oranges. And so I stayed out a little extra time and picked the oranges and was a tiny bit late to my first meeting of the day. Yeah. Nice. It's very common for us to hear that kind of response. I think the younger self always tells us to sort of just relax a little bit and enjoy the moment. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, my son gave me some advice like that early on in the pandemic when they were not in school and I decided to take their education in my own hands and I was having them, you know, read. I talked about this teacher I had who had us read books and write in a journal. And so I was having my kids write a journal and my son's first journal entry, he was, I think, 11 years old. He said, mom, it is a global pandemic. You need to relax. <laughs> and I realized he was exactly right. Kim, where can people learn more about you and your books? Radicalcandor.com or justworktogether.com. Uh, I'm less and less on Twitter, but you can follow me there at Kimball Scott. And I'm more and more on LinkedIn. Fantastic. Kim, what a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you all so much. All right. Well, that was a ton of fun. Great to have yeah. Kim on the show. Love to hear what you guys took away. Like Meredith, want to start with you and just uh, what were some of your takeaways? Yeah. You know, I think I loved reading her books. I've, you know, known about her and her approach for several years. And it's, I think one of the coolest things is just hearing it from her that radical candor doesn't mean that doesn't give you permission to be an asshole, you know? And I think that especially in the tech world, there was kind of for a while a misconception with that. And it's nice to hear it from the person who wrote Radical Candor. Like, no, that's not the case. Like, and she just puts such a human lens to it, you know? And I think in terms of being, you know, a manager, managing is hard, giving feedback is hard. And I think just in the climate that we're in, you have to be sensitive of what you say. And I think more times than none, people are starting to realize that. And I hope that her vocalizing it and people like us sharing the word will get around more, you know, make it like a nicer place to be and a more honest place, I think. Yeah. I mean, I've certainly been in a number of work situations where, you know, somebody says something that is cringeworthy. Sometimes it's me that says the cringeworthy thing. And, you know, I found it helpful when someone kind of pointed it out so I could make a correction and not alienate people. I do think that it's just like, there's a fine line to be walked to not shut people down, like to help them see like, you know, that stung a little bit when you said that there's a different way to approach that. But, you know, I know that your heart was in the right place. If that's the case, sometimes people's heart is not in the right place. That's the one thing I worry about is, you know, do we shut people down where they feel like they're, they feel afraid to participate, you know, like the pendulum can swing really hard in another direction where we're trying to make a more inclusive space to bring people in. And we just need to be doing that in an, an inclusive way that helps people correct and save face. Well, and also, you know, to add to that, people are 
extroverted and introverted. So there's like all these dimensions and complexities to doing this, right? And so just because you might not say something doesn't mean you don't have something to say. It just means that maybe that's just not your style. And so how do you get your point across if that is something that might be harder for you to do and vice versa? If you're an extrovert, how sometimes do you rein it in? And be a little bit more conscious about the feedback that you're giving and making sure that it's appropriate for the situation and the length of it's appropriate and that people are open to hearing it versus just giving it. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like a big part of this is just realizing not everybody is like you. My wife and I have had a lot of interesting discussions because we just have extremely different cognitive styles. And so much of what surfaces as a disagreement or even a pretty intense argument is actually just that we have very different ways of processing the world. And what happens in our heads is, is wildly different. At work, I find it really interesting. Many of my colleagues are Indian and they speak multiple languages. And it's just it's a really interesting way to get into having them talk about what happens in their head by just asking them about their experience when they're thinking in different languages. You know, and, and I don't. I only speak in English. I'm actually sort of envious because they will talk about having completely different personalities in different languages. It's like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Or, you know, do you think in words? Do you think in pictures? And just sort of realizing that we're all, even if we're in the same shared space and we can see each other, we're all having wildly different experiences. We're trapped in different bodies. We have different neurological styles. We're processing things differently. It seems like if you can kind of start with that, especially if you can hold on to that from a point of view of curiosity rather than judgment it can end up being a much more productive and welcoming and interesting place. I wish there was like something, and maybe I'll start this, but like opening every meeting with just that, like this meeting is coming from a place of curiosity, not judgment, or something like that, just to get people in the right mindset. Because I think when you jump from meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting to meeting every hour, it just becomes this like slog and you just become on autopilot and you don't stop to think about maybe how you're reacting or how you're interacting with other people. And so it's like, is there a way we can reset the conversation? And maybe I'm just talking to myself right now, and this is something that I'm going to do and try, but <laughs> I probably wouldn't have thought about that, you know? Yeah, I liked what she said about taking a beat. I also really like the definitions, the shorthand definitions she had for bias, prejudice, and bullying, just to remind us of that. So bias is you don't mean it. Prejudice means you do mean it. And bullying is you're just being mean. So I'm going to assume that I'm going to make a huge assumption that what most people are really sensitive to is bias, because I'm just going to assume all evidence probably to the contrary, that there aren't a vast majority of people that are filled with prejudice and hate and bullying tendencies. So we'll just focus on bias for a second. And the, the thing is, if you don't give yourself space and time and you're not well rested, it's very hard to bring your best self into these meetings and your bias, like it's, it becomes very hard to trap it yourself because it's this extra layer of processing you have to do. Like one of the things I've really liked about remote work as an extreme introvert is after a meeting, I can go walk around and process some stuff and like kind of recover my cognitive experience. Whereas when I'm at the office, I have people interrupting me all the time and I'm just getting buffeted around. And I, it's very hard for me to be my best self in that sort of an environment. Yeah, I definitely need the space to process to be able to respond to these things. But every once in a while, I have the mental aptitude to sort of like be aware of how bias is creeping into a conversation, a group conversation, and be able to, I don't know, just bring it to people's attention. I love the word ouch. The purple flag works well also, but you don't always have the flag, you know, at the ready. <laughs> uh, listeners couldn't see it, but Kim actually had a purple flag on hand at her desk when we were talking to her. But just the ouch, like, and it doesn't, 
have to be, you've done something terrible, but just like, I felt that in a way that maybe wasn't intended. And that can be a helpful cue for the person speaking to just inquire and learn more without it being like shutting down the conversation entirely. Yeah. I like that line she had about disrupt the bias, not the meeting. Perhaps that's where things can go a little bit sideways, you know, and I had some great interactions and various jobs where somebody would pull me aside after a meeting and point something out and they needed to do it in the moment when it was still fresh in my mind. And every time I was sort of embarrassed and ashamed by what had transpired, and I actually was really grateful that they pointed it out. If they had disrupted the meeting, it would have been a very different dynamic, but that they pulled me aside in private and sort of pointed some things out was actually profoundly useful. Just before we close, a couple of other things she said kind of early on in the interview that I wrote down was, I loved her quote, I am a human being, and as a human being, I do not scale. I thought that was really interesting and useful to keep in mind. And then she had a great quote talking about how she had written Radical Candor, and then she ended up getting a lot of feedback based on the book. And, and she had this other great line, like, feedback can really enrich your life. You know, being in a creative profession, my day-to-day is I get feedback about my work, but rarely do I get feedback about my performance or my verbal style or something like that. And, sh- and she's right. Like, feedback is how the environment helps us get better. We could all benefit from being in a mindset of giving and receiving feedback in a non-threatening, non-judgmental, hey, we're just all learning here, try to help each other out. I think that kind of mental attitude could, could be super beneficial for everyone. Yeah, tremendously valuable. And really to receive that feedback, we've got to cultivate a certain level of humility, you know, that, you know, we make mistakes and that's okay. It's not an indictment on who we are as a human being. It's just, it was a point in time and that point in time has passed and we can look back and learn from that and move forward. Thanks again to Kim Scott for joining us today, author of Radical Candor and Just Work. Recommend them both. Thanks for joining and listening today. Reconsidering is created by Aaron Walter, Bob Baxley, and me, Meredith Black, with editing help from Brian Paik of Pacific Audio. Original music for the show was written and performed by Kimo Meraki. You'll find a full transcript of this episode and all the links mentioned at reconsidering.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, hit subscribe in your favorite podcast player to catch future episodes and discover the treasures of the Reconsidering Library. To support the show, we'd be ever so grateful if you'd leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Your review will help others discover the show. And life, like the seasons, is ever-changing, but satisfaction can be found every day when we tune in. Until next time.